What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Dan Nathan, Bono and Eisen, and our special guest trader tonight, Barbara Ann Bernard, the CIO of Wincrest Capital. Tonight on Fast, everyone loves a comeback story, but which of this year's stock comebacks can keep up their momentum? And who's setting up for their own comeback in the new year? We'll get some answers. Plus, when a growth investor's nightmare becomes a value investor's dream. Sounds like a good movie. The recently sold off stock that one of our traders is adding to their portfolios. And don't forget, we've got a bonus hour of Fast. Actually, all week long, we've got a bonus hour. So send us your deepest burning trading questions. We'll try and get you some answers. Tweet us at CNBC Fast Money. But with the markets trading near all-time highs, we started with a simple question. Where can you find opportunities in these markets? After all, not all stocks are created equal. While the S&P 500 is up 15% this year, more than 200 stocks within it are still down this year. Check out some of these names. Delta's down 31%. AT&T off 26%. City down 24%. Ralph Lauren down 13%. Viacom down 12%. So what do you do? When you're looking for value, Guy Adami, do you look at these losers? Mm. Well, first of all, don't we have to wish uh, Barbara Ann. This, this is her first foray onto the desk. She's been with us clearly in the power mm-hmm. pitch capacity. But I believe this is her first time. And... You know, we like nicknames here. And I know, Mel, I know one of your favorite movies, it's mine as well, was The Great North Dallas 40, starring the late Mac Davis and Nick Nolte. And I know you know this as well, that the head coach, his nickname was B.A. So I think in uh, light of that and in honor of that, Barbara Ann should now just be B.A. What do you think? I think that's a compliment. I hope it is. But <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge... If okay. you get a nickname, by definition, by de- it's a compliment. It should be. Because... Unless Think it's like it. fatty I mean, we or the shorty, then that that's, nickname. And that's not a compliment. Yeah, well. I, anyway, back yeah, to the original not, question. Not, when you're looking for what value, was the oh no, I'll tell you, you exactly. I know what the question was. No, you don't go with the losers. You go with the things that have actually performed. The resource trade, I think, not only performed well this year, I think it's going to be even better next year because, as you heard just on the closing bell, the dollar below 90, the Dixie dollars going lower means resources go higher. IBB continues to make new all-time highs. I think you stay there. You stay with the things that have worked because the things that worked, in my opinion, in this year are going to work early next year. Barbara Ann, you are a value investor. So how do you regard this year's losers? Is there value to be found there? There's always something to do. Um, I'm personally finding a lot more value outside of the U.S. right now. I'm quite keen on a company that encompasses the streaming revolution. We talk about that in terms of gaming, but you can also find it in music. And if you look at a company like Vivendi, um, super interesting company, hasn't had a big move this year, and it is cheap. We have a catalyst and we have tailwinds. So why is it cheap? Tencent um, just uh, announced that they are going to um, exercise their option to buy another 10% of United Music Group. United Music Group is the largest owner of music in the world. Um, And digitization means music is now a great business because every time you're downloading it, UMG is getting paid. So they are valuing UMG at $30 billion. That's more than the market cap of Vivendi. 
So you're getting the rest of Vivendi for free, and mm. Vivendi made 870 million euros last year so in EBITDA. So I'm happy to take that for free. Here's the catalyst. They've told you they're going to IPO UMG during 2022. So you don't have long. You've got tailwinds. It's cheap. And streaming of music was up 22% last quarter. So I like it. So the value investors looking overseas. Dan Nathan, where do you look? You know, interestingly, I, I, I don't disagree with what Guy's saying. Guy's saying to stick to the, the growth at a reasonable price, I think is what he's saying, uh, versus what, what some might perceive are to be value traps, right? And so you could look at um, some of the names in energy. You could look at some of the names in the hospitality um, group and transportation, that sort of thing, and say, you know, the hardest hit names in the pandemic, they're cheap for a reason. Their climb back to peak earnings is going to take that much longer. There might have been holes blown in their balance sheets or dilutive equity offers or that sort of thing. And all that is true. But if you are in a bull market here and, and Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, told us what he thinks about risk assets and valuations relative to where um, interest rates are, you know, you're going to have some of these things that, that look like value traps will join the party. That's been a big theme of the market over the last couple of months is the broadening out of the rally. So again, we've talked a lot about airlines and cruises. I don't really care for the cruises, but airlines like JetBlue that are domestically focused don't have this max exposure. You know, I would expect that to trade very well in 2021, especially if we start to see the vaccination rollout going uh, a little bit better than it has to start, but maybe it gets kicked into gear at some point in late uh, Q1. Yeah, and JetBlue is down, what, 20% so far this year? So it falls into that sort of, it was down a lot compared to the market, so a relative underperformer, yeah. uh, but also it is leveraged to the reopening. Bonwin, where would you look? Do you look at it by sector? Is it a stock picker's market in 21 in terms of finding value? I want to answer, I want to take a step back and, and kind of like <clears throat> expand on your first point, right? So when I think about value, what I'm thinking about is the ability for me to purchase a company for the equivalent to or less than the sum of its parts, or me being able to buy a growth company for a price that does not reflect the growth that I project the next several years. Uh, so under that guise, I mean, to answer your question, I really think it, it's going to be your travel and energy space. Um, they've been underperformance on a relative value point of view, but they've also been they've kind of walked to that brink of impairment, right? So if they're able to kind of restructure service debt, I mean, we, we all know that their access to capital markets will continue. We know that the Fed's going to continue to be involved. So if they're able to actually refinance, roll over, and continue to, to, to um, undertake financing activity that allows them to bridge themselves to the next interim point, I think that's really where the value is uh, under the context of the way that I defined it. So are you thinking of a specific energy stock, Bonowin? Uh, you know, I've, I've kicked the tires on Exxon. I've looked at Chevron. Mm -hmm. I've looked at the XLE. I've been trading that range. Uh, Exxon, if you want a short answer, I think that stock is down about 40% this year. It's lost over $100 billion in, in uh, market cap. I think, you know, investors have shown you there's a propensity to reach for growth here. I expect these laggards to be um, in a lot more portfolios going forward, 21, 22. I'm going to do what in TV we call a tease. Uh, we're going to play a uh -oh. game shortly called Trader Faded. But prior to that, I want to bring in the name of another game guy that we often play in Fast Money, and that is Value Trader, Value Trap. Because I think for ExxonMobil, a lot of people mm. might think that this, in fact, looks like value, but it's actually a trap. We don't know about the dividend. They have a lot of um, impairments maybe to come. So where do you stand on XOM? Mm -hmm. 
Well, a couple, a month and a half, two months ago, we talked about this. I think we had Mr. Sankey on, if you recall, when it was trading 31. Mm -hmm. And I think collectively we said, look, major double bottom, uh, great opportunity here, risk reward, <coughs> probably goes to the mid 40s. And I think we probably said value trade then, trap now, ah. TRAP, trap. I know you were like <laughs> a match fan. Trapper was one of my, he was sort of my guy. But that's, again, neither here nor there. The other thing I was going to mention quickly, because we have two hours, although I'm not on the second hour, is what does it do to actually kick the tires? Do you learn anything? Do you glean any information when you actually kick the tires of a car? The answer is no. But to answer your question, at $42, it's a trap, not, not a trade. Barbara Ann, I will pose the question to you. Not what do we glean by kicking the tires, but do you think XOM is a value trade or a value trap? So I love the question. I actually had this conversation with Warren Buffett last year, and he said, look, there is no difference between growth and value investing. All investing is value investing. What you're trying to do is grow your money. And I thought that was just a brilliant answer. Um, so I personally don't, I, it, I give you excellent, it's cheap, but I think it's more of a trap. I think they're better business models. Dan, are you going to comment on Barbara Ann's um, name dropping? which is by far the best name yes, drop that I we've gonna, had on this show probably say, ever in the history of Fast Money. <laughs> that's all I was going to say. I just said, listen, 14 years, and there's probably not a better name drop. B.A., just drop the mic and walk off at this moment because it was epic. <laughs> We're only nine minutes in, though, so don't, don't walk off. <laughs> we've still got a lot oh, of show sorry. left, at least for this, for this hour. Guy, down in terms of a, of a specific value play for next year, where would you go? I'd, listen, I think still a lot of these big cap pharma names are cheap. I, I think Eli Lilly is still cheap. I, I, you know, I've said this a number of times. My wife works at Merck. That stock's been trading sideways for a while, but I think Merck is cheap. So the big cap pharma to me is, is, is still relatively inexpensive vis-a-vis -vis the broader market. So that's where I would be. Yeah. Bonwin, do you expect that uh, to, to bear some fruit for you in, in next year? And, and we should separate the big cap farmer from biotech, obviously. There's a lot of um, interest this year surrounding the vaccine names and M&A &A in that space. Um, sure. I mean, listen, I, I think those names have been cheap for a reason. Um, there has been... Uh, Outside of the COVID vaccine, I think there's been a, a you know a, a bifurcation or a difference between large cap pharma and some of the biotechs that have been innovative in engineering uh, new um, uh, new solutions to diseases and things of that nature. I honestly don't traffic that much in big car, in, in big cap pharma, so I don't want to comment in a, in a space that I'm relatively ignorant about. Um, but yes, I think there's value everywhere. I think BA mentioned that as well. She can drop the mic again there. There's always an opportunity there, right? The, the way that I'm looking at it is where is value? Where are things cheap? And under that, guys, sure, I, I think there's opportunities there. All right. Well, I mentioned that we we're going to play a game. So here it is. We thought we'd take a look at some of the names that made big comebacks over the last 12 months and tell you what to do with them now. Shares of FedEx falling 7% in 2019. It did make, though, a huge rebound, as you know, this year, up more than 70% year-to-date. Expedia, Gap, Kraft, Heinz, also in the red last year, but posting sizable gains in 2020. So we wondered which of these names really staged a turnaround. And in true Fast Money fashion, we thought it'd be a great time to play a little... Trade it or fade it! It is the game you know and love, and we kick things off with FedEx Bonowin. We have a new trader to the panel, so please play the game right. Trade it or fade it. <laughs> yes, ma'am. I'll keep myself out of the penalty box. I will be trading FedEx, Mel. 
Um, listen, I think that the return to normalcy, as we've all defined it, is going to be a bit more protracted than a lot of the optimists think. I think we're looking at six months and out. And for that reason, the whole supply chain, distribution, delivery system, I expect that to hold true for the next uh, quarter or two. And if you look at FedEx, Visa, Visa, UPS, right, it's still about six, seven turns uh, cheap from a PE multiple. So, you know, I kind of put all those things together. I, I, I do see a double top up around $300 that gives me pause, but I also see short-term support around two double. So when I keep all of that, take all of that in consideration, I, per, I think this thing has been a COVID darling. I don't think we're out of it yet, and I'm, I'm trading it for that reason for the next quarter or two. Dan. Yeah, so for some of our viewers who are not familiar with some of the Wall Street jargon, two double would be 255, right, Guy? You know that one. Um, here's the thing. I, I don't disagree with a word of what Bonoan just said there. I, I'll just tell you this. Just as the stock overshot to the downside trading below $100 in the throes of this pandemic back in uh, March and April, I think getting up towards 300 where it was just a couple weeks ago kind of overshot to, to the upside here. So, you know, if you look at back at those January 2018 highs somewhere around that 250 to 55 range, I'd say that there's a little more room to the downside here. I think the stock needs to digest a little bit of some of this kind of enthusiasm about, oh yeah, so, so fade it. Um, that was the kind of the hook. That's what they call it back in the day. Um, but I, I think this stock probably finds some support somewhere closer to, you know, 225, 230 or something like that. I, I just think that this sell off of 15 percent over the last couple of weeks is not done yet. All right. Let's get to Kraft Heinz here. Guy, you trade it or fade it? I'm going to answer that question in a second. But what I want to know the answer to is four days prior to Christmas, we played wrap it or scrap it. I looked at my planner today. It's the 29th, which is four days post. Is there a reason why we're not still in the wrap it or scrap it mode? Or is that just once the 25th ends, do we move on? That's just my question, just so I know going forward. We want to challenge your intellect by playing a game that you have difficulty with. Yeah. <laughs> so trade it or well, fade it, guys. That's not hard. Apparently, not, you, you, you really still do. It's not that hard to do. I mean, you know, tic-tac-toe's challenging for me. <laughs> trade it! And I'll tell you why I trade, trade Kraft Heinz. First of all, valuation is compelling at these levels. Trading at probably 13 and a half next time's numbers. It's right up against that August high that we failed from. I think it breaks through. By the way, I think this is actually a name that activists could, to Bonowin's point, kick the tires on in 2021. And I think we trade back to that 48 level that we last saw in February of 2019. Not a lot of growth. I get it. But this could be one of those classic reopening names. So trade Kraft Heinz. Barbara Ann, Kraft Heinz. Oh, I'm fading it. I worry about this company. They keep, buying, they keep buying little brands that help the periphery of their brand, but it's actually the core that's the problem. And I agree, it's cheap. But the problem with being cheap on 12 times earnings is so is your currency. So their acquisitions are dilutive, not accretive. And I just think they should, could be a lot more innovative. All right, let's get to uh, the gap. Dan, would you trade it or fade it? No, I'm fading this one. I mean, listen, you know, I'm going to do a little name dropping right here. Guy Adami, you know, he and I, he and I show up on the interwebs every once in a while with a little chat. And sometimes I kind of have to kind of 
work on his fashion a little bit and he'll say something about ah, i'm gonna go to the gap and do this and that or whatever dude this is not fast fashion it's not even old school fashion we got to get him in some brooks brothers mm. this is just a, a company that I, again i think another situation where the stock overshot to the downside back in march but really um you know is overshooting the upside here so to me i'm not chasing this one i know that the stocks pulled back a little bit over the last couple of weeks i just don't think this is where you want to be as far as fashion as far as the way uh retail is evolving so this one is not for me here. But Guy, I thought Kanye was going to solve all of Gap's problems next year. I say that sarcastically. Trade it or fade no, it? No, it's funny because I spoke, I spoke to Ye um, <laughs> recently and we talked about GPS and he said that he actually, you know, he, he wasn't as optimistic. He, he didn't think I should be as optimistic as I was. Anyway, you know, we have those conversations where, where you know, we're tight. Fade it, though. Absolutely fade it. You had a huge run of 26. All the shorts got squeezed. The problems with this company have not been solved. Steve Kornacki, love him to death. But, you know, we're through the November elections. we got to wait another four years before his khakis come back into style. So I think you got the Kornacki and yay bounce. I'm fading it here. All right, let's get to Expedia. And I had to read this twice because I couldn't believe that Expedia is up 20% year to date. So, Barbara, Ann, trade it or fade it? <coughs> I like Expedia. It's a good business model. I think it's pretty fairly priced here. I played this. Uh, so yeah, I'm trading it. Um, I played the same theme, but I did it through an India, a Nasdaq listed Indian company called Make My Trip, just because I like their dominant market share in India. But that hit my price target earlier this month, and I sold it. And I think if I owned Expedia, I would do the same thing here. All right, Bonowin. Uh, I'd also be trading it. Listen, I think this is one of those situations where fundamentals meet technical, a strong uptrend. And I'd add to that that it definitely, you know, plays into that momentum reopening trade as well. And I'm reluctant to fight against the momentum that we've seen throughout 2020. Um, the last thing I'll say is that it gives you that exposure to travel without you taking on uh, the, the, the leverage and debt that is now on a ton of these airline balance sheets. So I'm trading it. All right, we've got some uh, developments on the stimulus bill out of Washington. Elon Moy's got the details. Elon. I've now been able to see a copy of the bill that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell intends to bring before his chamber to increase the size of the stimulus checks to $2,000. Now, that bill, though, would also be linked to repealing Section 230, those liability protections for tech companies, as well as establishing a bipartisan commission to look at election security. Now, the Senate would not be able to consider this bill until after it votes on uh, overriding President Trump's veto of the defense spending bill. So we are not likely to see this come to the floor for perhaps a couple of days. But by packaging it all together, this bill is almost certainly not going to get any Democratic support and would fail in the Senate. So now we sort of see how this fight over increasing the stimulus checks could end with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell now intending to package these three items together into one bill. Melissa. All right, Elon, thank you. Elon Moy. Coming up, a Baba bounce. Quite a rebound from last week's sell-off by one of our traders was delighted by the move. Here she saw in the stock today. But for shares of long-suffering Intel posting their best day since April, the news behind that move and whether the stock is really a buy. Fast Money's back right after this. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. 
What can you do with Spy? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. Spy is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to Fast Money. Here's a chip check. Intel having its best day since April, up nearly 5%. Leslie Picker joins us now with the news that sent shares soaring. Leslie. Hey, Melissa. Intel shareholders applauding a new stake by third point, which is pushing the company to make some changes with the hope of boosting that stock. It seems to be working today, at least. The hedge fund led by Dan Loeb is urging Intel to hire a banker to advise on strategic alternatives, including whether the company should remain an integrated device manufacturer and whether it needs to divest some assets in a Sharply worded letter obtained by CNBC, Third Point's Dan Loeb criticizes Intel uh, and its, quote, loss of manufacturing leadership as well as its lagging position among competitors. Loeb notes that Intel is at risk of losing customers as well as talent, despite rewarding management with what he calls a, quote, extravagant compensation package. Notably, Third Point says that it is preserving the option to nominate directors to the board if Loeb senses a reluctance to work together to address his concerns. In other words, there could be a proxy fight in 2021. Now, some investors cheering him on, sending that stock up nearly 5% today, but it's still more than 17% lower for the year, while a semiconductor ETF is up 56%. Now, the size of third point stake in Intel is not disclosed in the letter, nor in SEC filings quite yet, but Reuters is reporting it's worth about a billion dollars, which is half a percentage point of Intel's market cap. So in response, Intel says it, quote, welcomes input from all investors regarding enhanced shareholder value and goes on to say it looks forward to engaging with third point and their ideas towards that goal. Now, a quick question, Leslie, and that is basically they're saying hire an advisor, determine whether or not you should still be a manufacturer, but they are saying that the decline in Intel is a national security concern, right? Right, right. So they say that this should make it imperative to to get these issues as they laid them out mm-hmm. uh, fixed. But you're right. They, they highlighted uh, that Intel and what it does is of national security um, importance and, and therefore they're hoping that whatever strategic fixes they're able to achieve right. uh, can, can work toward that goal. All right. Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker. Um, Guy, it's interesting. And I asked Leslie those questions because it seems like if you were to consider not being a manufacturer, which is actually what Intel is considering in terms of outsourcing some of its manufacturing, that that, in fact, could be a national security concern in and of itself, that you would want to keep the, uh, the manufacturing. But if you told Intel to keep the manufacturing, that could actually cripple them in terms of what they need to fix and how quickly they can grow. Right. And you think outsourcing manufacturing, exactly. Those were my thoughts when I heard you guys talking about that, number one. Number two, I love that angle, national secure. I mean, that, took, that was a creative way of thinking for third point. Good for them. And number three, I mean, we talked about this when they reported their third, I think it was their third quarter on October 23rd. Their data center business, which is you know, a big portion of what they do, is a disaster. And their margins have been disaster. And that comes in the wake of names like AMD knocking the cover off the ball. They're just five years behind the competition. So you got to bounce in the name today. People will say it's cheap on valuation. It's cheap for a reason because you basically have negative EPS growth. And maybe you can get back to 53 and a half, 54. I'm fascinated to see what analysts say on the back of this. You had a lot of downgrades back in October. Mm-hmm. I think some of these analysts are going to take it. This bounce as an opportunity to downgrade it again. Hmm. The letter, if you have read it or parts of the letter that were available, excoriated the board 
as well as management. It said that the board basically allowed management to fritter away, those are the, the in the letter, the words in the letter, fritter away advantages while paying management lavishly as the company lost market share, Dan. I mean, should Bob Swan be worried? If Bob Swan got, got kicked out, would Intel shares go higher at this point? Yeah, they would. Uh, if you guys recall, he was, uh, you know, the interim CEO while they were looking for another CEO. This was mm-hmm. back in 2018, 19. Um, they, the board settled with him. I, I don't place a lot of emphasis on how the board was paid given what was going on. I think it's most important to focus on the fact that Dan Loeb has a multi-decade track record of targeting companies that just, whether it be a management issue, whether it be misexecution, you know, right here, there's a whole host of problems here. And he probably sees this given the valuation, given the balance sheet, given some of the core competencies of this company over the last 50 years, that this is kind of an easy one. We spent a lot of time in 2020 talking about all these amazing things that all these chip companies are doing with advanced technologies, that sort of thing. Intel has the DNA for this. They just need to turn things around. So I suspect Third Point sees a tremendous opportunity. And, and as Guy is saying, as far as analysts, down, who cares about the analysts? There's never been fewer buy ratings on this stock than there is right now. And if you look at the top holders of this on uh, Bloomberg, for instance, most of them have been selling over the last um, you know, year or so. So to me, sentiment is horrible. Dan Loeb has a track record of getting things done. I probably wouldn't step in the way of this thing, especially when we were talking about this stock maybe a week or two ago saying your probably worst case scenario to the downside is mid to low 40s. So I, I think that's where your downside is and your upside is back up towards, I don't know, 60 bucks in the near mm. term. It's not bad. All right, we're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. It's been a wild ride for IPOs this year, and 2021 could be shaping up to be even wilder. We'll take a look at the names you should watch and which ones you might want to stay clear of. Plus, an interesting phenomenon happening in the options markets. Why traders are making some bearish bets on a much-loved stock. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Early investor in two of 2020's biggest IPOs sees another big year ahead. Rick Heitzman is an Airbnb and DraftKings investor. He's the founder and partner at First Mark Capital. Rick, always great to speak with you. Always good seeing you. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you. Um, are we to surmise that you think that the stock market, 
you know, the euphoria, whatever you want to call it, the momentum higher is going to continue because you see IPOs being strong next year? We do. We see a number of IPOs getting ready to go and a number of uh, public financings, whether that's be a SPAC, traditional IPO, or even uh, the new direct listing. So everyone feels very strong uh, on the technology side about the coming wave of 2021 IPOs. What kinds of companies, I mean, are these going to be the massive unicorn type companies that we saw in 2020? And what do you think is going to be the, the avenue of choice in terms of method of going public? So I think you're going to see companies of all sizes going public. I think a couple of the companies people are most excited about is Roblox, a video game company. If anyone has teens, preteens, it's where kids are spending their time. It's almost like the PG version of uh, Fortnite. It's going to be a massive company, $10 billion plus. On the enterprise side, we're going to see UiPath, which is kind of continuing the drumbeat of AI come out, and that'll be a $20 billion plus company. And then you're going to see a lot of the other enterprise software and consumer companies coming. But I, I also see, to answer the second part of your question, uh, traditional IPOs remaining strong, and they'll have a majority of the market share. But if you look at the number of SPACs raised and how some of the other companies have really performed in the SPAC, in the SPAC market of Open Door and DraftKings and the like, I think you're going to see kind of those super premium companies taking time. And in every private company boardroom today, folks are taking their time, being thoughtful about how they go public. So the SEC just changed that you could raise uh, direct capital through a direct listing. So being able to off offer primary shares as part of that. And obviously, we've talked a lot about SPACs, and I think every single premium company is thinking about how to tell their story better, and SPACs are definitely the best methodology for that. So, um, Rich, I have a question for you. You're clearly a visionary, sure. and you're a very early investor in Airbnb, and I think I certainly watched an awe, and so did the CEO, Brian. That IPO was extraordinary. <laughs> and I had to double-click on that because I, had, I thought, what am I missing? How is this worth more than every listed hotel when it doesn't even own a hotel? And I yeah. had to think, yeah. and I said, wait a minute. It enables me to experience places that don't even have a hotel. And exactly. this is creating work from home to be work from any home. And, you know, 28-day stays is very different from a hotel. So my question is, where is the next Airbnb? Like, what, what other sectors are ripe for that kind of disruption? So you're talking about some things in marketplaces around the sharing economy that Airbnb is really the pinnacle of, of you know, marketplaces that you've seen with, with companies like StubHub, Airbnb, Upwork on the enterprise side. The next wave of innovation we're seeing is on the healthcare side. And as you know, healthcare is one of the biggest sectors in the economy. We're seeing more healthcare companies going direct to consumer, offering pharmaceuticals, offering care in home. And we think that's going to be a great opportunity going forward. In addition to that, we've begun to see some real estate companies doing very well. Uh, Open Door, which went public through a SPAC, is now a $20 billion public company, which is changing the way people buy houses. And then we've always loved video games. We, you know, we saw Roblox is coming out. We've seen all the video game companies perform regardless of up market or down market. So you look more broadly across those sectors. Those are the companies and some of the leaders we're going to be seeing uh, in the public markets in 2021. Uh, hey, Rick, it's Dan. You know, obviously you started out this conversation by saying how bullish you are about uh, some very innovative private companies coming to public markets. You just mentioned marketplaces. You mentioned a lot of consumer-oriented names. How do you make um, 
How do you make sense of some of these enterprise software valuations that we've seen that have come to market either by direct listing or by IPO this year? These are less sexy names for some of our viewers as far as knowing their products and services, but do you continue to see um, some of these SaaS names trading at ridiculous uh, public market valuations going forward? Uh, we're seeing the SaaS names come public. We're seeing the, the transition, and we're only probably about in the third or fourth inning of the transition to the cloud. So although IBM is buying the ads for the last five years, the actual implementation of the cloud is only about 30, 40% of the way there. And with that becomes a, comes a whole new data infrastructure, a whole new set of both open source and enterprise software tools. So especially things around data, and we look at some of the biggest companies in data of Datakin, Databricks, uh, DataHiQ, and, <clears throat> and DataRobot, all of which will be IPO uh, targets in the coming 18 months. And although you know it's hard to see what those enterprise multiples will be, I think people are betting on a fundamental shift from kind of the legacy infrastructure into the cloud-based model. Rick, always great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank Happy you. Happy New, New Year. Year. Rick Heitzman. Um, how do we use this information in terms of the trends that Rick is seeing, Bonowin, and translate that to publicly traded stocks? I mean, I think it's interesting that he named certain sectors that he thought are ripe for disruption. Um, should we be concerned about the incumbents that are publicly traded? Um, I think, you, I, listen, I think innovation is key, right? And I think if you fail to innovate, as we've seen in Intel's case, public market is relatively unforgiving. I'd be curious to see what we see, what, what we have historically seen as a 4 to 5% risk premium between public and private markets, given the accelerated timeline to, to the public space now, whether it be IPOs, traditionally SPACs, direct listing. I'm curious to see whether that risk premium holds true or the, whether we start to see a bit more picking and choosing on the private equity side. Um, but yes, that, that's, that's what I'm looking, looking for to kind of tease out in terms like a, a portfolio construction um, thesis going forward. All right, coming up, it's been a long two years, but Boeing 737 MAX is finally back in the air. But is that an all clear for the stock? We'll get some answers. And don't forget, there is a bonus hour fast coming your way at the top of the hour. If you got questions, we want to hear them. Tweet us at CNBC Fast Money and tune in for some answers. Welcome back to Fast Money, a momentous day for Boeing as the 737 MAX jet took its first commercial flight in nearly two years. Phil LeBeau was on that plane, and he joins us with the details. Glad you're safe, Phil. What was it like? <laughs> it was uneventful, Melissa, but that's what we talked about this morning on Squawk Box, that, look, if it's an uneventful flight, that is exactly what American Airlines was looking for. It was a two-and-a-half-hour flight from Miami up here to LaGuardia, and we took off on time. It was smooth. No big reaction on board. There were a number of American executives as well as aviation uh, enthusiasts who wanted to make sure they were on the first MAX flight here in the United States in nearly two years. Now, they're going to be flying daily between Miami and New York City. When we were on board talking with some of the passengers after they boarded, now, again, most of these people said, yeah, I wanted to be on this flight because it's the MAX getting back in the air. But there were a few people who genuinely did not realize that they had booked a ticket on the MAX. I asked them if they were hesitant about it once it was uh, clear to them that they were on the MAX. They said, eh, I thought about it a little bit, but it wasn't any big deal once we took off. This is what we're going to see more of over the next several months. The airlines are going to be bringing the MAX back into service. You've got American now starting today. Now you're going to have United on February 11th. 
Alaska and Southwest will bring the MAX into their schedules in March, and they're going to rapidly bring these planes into service. This is not a case where you see one or two. In the case of American, they plan to bring 34 of these MAX airplanes in fairly quickly. So as you take a look at shares of American, keep in mind that most of these MAX planes, 24 that were grounded and another 10 that they've just taken delivery of, they're much more cost-effective, more fuel-efficient. They want to get them into the fleet as quickly as possible. So, Melissa, the bottom line is this. We now have gotten past a big hurdle for Boeing and for the airlines. The MAX is back in service. Now you're going to see it more often over the next several months, next couple of years. I'll ask you what I asked you at 6.30 this morning, Phil. <laughs> and that is, are we getting any indications as to what the reservations are like for the 737 MAX routes? Well, right now we just have between Miami mm -hmm. and New York, and it was half full coming up here, but it was nearly completely full all the way down to Miami. And that's a reflection of the market right now. I was just talking with somebody who was trying to book a flight back to Miami for tomorrow, completely booked, uh -huh. completely booked, every airline from here. And they said, well, maybe I'll go into Fort Lauderdale and then drive over there. That's the market right now. People are going to Florida. They're not coming up here to New York. So there's no indication, though, to get to your point, Melissa, that people are saying, oh, boy, I'm not going to take that, pl that flight because it's a 737 MAX. We asked the president of American today, and he said it seems to be having the same impact with passengers as any other plane. In other words, there's no indication that people are steering clear of it at this point. All right. Phil, thank you. you do you have to turn around and get on you a bet. flight to Chicago now? Oh, I wish. Those days are gone. <laughs> Those days are gone. I'll be staying here. Okay. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau, have a nice day in New York City. You bet. Barbara Ann, have we seen the worst for Boeing now? Well, I actually watched you interview Phil at 6.30 a.m., so I'm glad he made it safe. But um, <laughs> have we seen the worst for Boeing? Boeing, you know, a lot of the – their client is airlines. And so on the defense side, I mean, yes, the defense side is fine, right? Um, on the airline side, I just don't think there are a shortage of airlines right now. I am with the CEO of Spirit, and I don't think business travel will come back the, uh, for a while. People will travel for vacations. Um, and that's what he said this morning, and I agree. Uh, but the highest margin traveler is the business traveler. So um, I, I, I would rather, you know, I'd rather own Heiko, which does plane parts, than Boeing. That's uh, probably a better way to play this because you have to change plane parts whether it flies or not. Um, I don't like companies with a lot of debt. Delta, Boeing, these are zombie companies. Their EBIT doesn't cover their interest expense. So um, there's not a lot of room to maneuver when your balance sheet is stretched and your sales are questionable. Mm -hmm. A guy, I think you and Barbara Ann are kindred spirits on this one in terms of going to the parts makers as opposed to the plane maker. Yeah, it's interesting. So we talked about Spirit Aerospace, I think, maybe mid-November, the stock was trading 28. We said, if you like Boeing here, you got to love SPR. And it went basically from 28 to 41. I think UBS put a $50 price target, and I think it gets there. And I know you were encouraged by the fact, I know Phil was thrilled this morning, you know, he didn't see Charlton Heston, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., or George Kennedy on the flight, so he knew he was going to be fine. And I know that went right over your head, Mel, and I expected it to, but there are a lot of people out there in TV land that are snickering right now. I'll take your word for that. Uh, coming up, Alibaba getting a boost today after a big tumble at the end of last week. We'll tell you why Wall Street is changing its tune on the Chinese tech giant. And speaking of tech, Apple seeing some strange activity in the options market. We'll break down the action.
tell you how you can cash in. Don't go anywhere. Much more Fast Money right after this. got some news on stimulus. Let's get to Elon Moy in Washington. Elon. Melissa, the Treasury Secretary has said that the $600 stimulus checks that were signed into law this week could start arriving in bank accounts tonight. Over Twitter, he said that Treasury has delivered a payment file to the Federal Reserve and that those payments could be direct deposited as early as tonight and that they will continue into next week. Paper checks will be mailed tomorrow and that people can check the status of their payments at the IRS website. Now, of course, all of this is going on even as Washington and Congress continue to debate whether to send out even bigger checks. But for now, those $600 checks do appear to be going out as soon as tonight. Melissa. Good news. Elon, thank you. Elon Moy. Well, some relief for Alibaba investors today. The stock surging about 7% on encouraging developments surrounding an antitrust probe. China Central Bank reporting Alibaba's fintech affiliate Ant Group plans to set up a financial holding firm, but the e-commerce giant's shares remain deep in the red, off 24% over the past two months. Um, Barbara Ann, you came on this show. I think the first time you came on the show, you talked about Alibaba. Are you sticking by it? I am. Um, I'm going to name drop one more time here. Whenever Sir John Templeton would pitch a stock or get something wrong and someone would say, but, you know, it's gone down, he'd say yes, and that's very humbling. So my pitch to Alibaba was very humbling. But what I will say is a growth investor's nightmare can be a value investor's dream. All weekend long you had on Bloomberg playing, and it's turning into a nightmare, a nightmare. Well, I was putting it in my mom's stocking. So calls to regulate tech are not unique to China. Right. It, and in the U.S. and Europe, they're trying to regulate it. In, in the U.S., they're calling for breakups. So this is a case of macro volatility creating micro opportunity. And if you know, remember my pitch, um, you are getting Ant for free. So don't worry about it. Right. There, Alibaba has many more components to its business. And, you know, it's hard to find a, a solid comp for Alibaba. But I have to pay 55 times earnings for Amazon and I can pay 23 for Baba. And and that's um, not including when you when you take out the cash. So I have a variant per- perception on what it means when the Chinese government calls for more regulation. Um, inadvertently, what they are doing is saying put up more regulatory capital, put you know they're, they're, uh, regulate your business. What that does is it creates barriers to entry, and over time that makes this business even better. Not tomorrow, but over time. So if you're patient. And you can, you know, wait two years and not uh, two days. I think Baba is still a, a, a great buy here um, and a wonderful opportunity of really digging in and doing the homework. This year has just been all macro, and I believe fundamentals and valuation still matter. And what we have here is a bear market in fundamentals. I, I can't wait for the next ten minutes to see who else Barbara Ann name drops. I mean, it's just it's amazing. <laughs> I know that you're thinking about Dan and Guy. I, I could see the smirks on your faces. Um, up next, options trading activities seeing a big boost this year. And there is one name that's gotten extra special attention from traders. We'll tell you what it is and how to play it. Be sure to tune in to our very special bonus hour, Fast Money. That is coming up next. We're answering your burning stock questions. So don't be shy. Send us a tweet at CNBC Fast Money.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Options trading volumes are exploding among retail investors. Institutional options trading is also on the rise, but these two groups of investors aren't seeing eye to eye. Check out what Interactive Brokers CEO Thomas Petterfee said about how his customers are positioning themselves this morning on Squawk on the Street. A fantastically unusual thing happened among our customers about a week ago. Our customers are traditionally always long the market. A week ago, it has changed. The Robin Hood folks are long these options and interactive brokers. <laughs> customers are short these options. So it's a, it's a very interesting uh, situation. It, it has never happened in our history that our customers as a whole were not short the market. But as of yesterday, that is the case. Interesting reversal there. Bonowin spotted some unusual trading in one retail trading favorite that backs up what Petterfi is saying. He's here with the action, Bonowin. Thanks, Melissa. Timely spot there. So, yes, taking a look at Apple. Um, calls out pace puts about three to one. About a million and a half call options traded today. A little bit more than that, actually. If you take a look at the implied move of the options between now and December 31st or Thursday, the options imply about a 2% move in either direction between now and then. And then staying on theme, I saw about 125,000 Apple Deck 31st X3 137 calls. Uh, a large chunk of those were traded and were sold about 130, putting your break even at about 138.30 or about 2.5% higher than spot. I will add that we also saw some downside puts being bought. And you did see some upside calls being purchased, but most of those were closing open interest or reducing uh, risk or leverage there. So risk-reducing posture across the board in Apple going into year-end. Hmm. All right, time for the final trade now. Let's go around the horn. Dan Nathan. Yeah, we mentioned some of the airlines. I like JetBlue. doesn't have that max exposure and doesn't have that business travel exposure. Barbara and Bernard. I like Capri. Pitched it last week. At least that one's gone up. Uh, some of the parts bases are getting cores for free. Um, and Jimmy Choo and Versace, as you demonstrated by the LVMH uh, deal closing today, are very attractive luxury brands. Bonowin. Seeing a bit of a pullback in the space. CNBS. I think it's a chance to buy it on a bit of a dip here. Guy Adami. I was waiting for the Beach Boys name drop, like she was hanging with Al Jardine and, and Mike Love, but yeah, I guess that's for the next show. But Alibaba, <laughs> we talked about it bottoming out last night, had a big day today. I think that move to the upside continues, Mel. That does it for us for this hour, but wait, there's more. We've got special bonus hours coming your way after this break. All this week, in fact, but stay tuned. Fast Money's back in two. fans Kramer's off this week but you are in luck we've got a bonus hour fast money coming your way we're answering all your questions about the hot stocks you're trading right now so we want to hear from you tweet us at CNBC fast money we might just answer you live on the air with us tonight Dan Nathan Brian Kelly and Mike Coe so we've got a lot of ground to cover let's go dive right into it kicking things off with some of the biggest names in tech Michael from Massachusetts checking in. My questions about the FANG stocks. One specific, Google. Google's underperformed their fellow FANG stocks over the past month. I'm curious where you see it going in 2021. Also a big shout out to SQ for two. Dan, what do you tell Michael? I mean, he said FANG, MAGA FANG, 
some pronounce it tomato, tomato, whatever. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's a great question. I, I, you know, Michael, when, when these antitrust suits started coming out, it didn't really seem to impact um, Alphabet. The stock just kept on going higher. This was a, a few months ago. But to your point, it has gone sideways here. Here's the good news. It's gone sideways basically at an all-time high, despite the news in a way. So, you know, to me, this one, it trades at a pretty fair valuation. I think next year will be the year, though, where investors really start parsing through what these antitrust suits mean and what the costs associated with it, what potential breakups or remedies might be. And you, you may get further underperformance. All that said, it's not just the last two months. This stock is only up 31%. If you look at the MAGA complex, the Microsoft, the um, Apple, Google, and the Alphabet, this thing has traded much worse on a relative basis to the other ones. So for me, maybe it's investors kind of just holding a little powder here to see if this thing comes back in a little bit um, when we get more clarity on what these suits mean for Google. You think finally, Mike, uh, antitrust concerns are going to catch up? to this stock and maybe some of the others that also face that issue. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, we've been talking about antitrust issues for a long time. This is sort of a, a persistent overhang that these stocks face. But the same thing is that may actually be presenting a little bit of an opportunity. We have the market trading at an all-time basically high multiple. Uh, Alphabet right now is trading at or maybe even at a slight discount to the S&P 500, which is not really the normal case uh, that we would experience. So I think it actually presents a little bit of an opportunity. We know that it's out there. Uh, I have a feeling that they're going to be able to weather through it one way or another. Uh, and so I, I personally think that that overhang presents an opportunity to get it at a reasonably fair valuation. I'll change up the question a little bit for BK, and that is, would you choose Alphabet or any other stock in either the FANG or MAGA complex? Wow. It's, so it's like a would you rather, but rather, really rather, just, rather, rather, because it's anything. yeah, many options. Right, yeah, right, exactly. right. Yeah. You know what? Um, I, so hmm, that's a great question. I really like Amazon. I don't know where, which one of the A's it fits in. In, in Dan's MAGA, or if even fits in in Dan's MAGA, but I believe it's in the FANG. Uh, but I really do like Amazon, particularly with the stimulus checks, the way that it's traded recently. It has traded sideways for a while, consolidated to me, looks like it's going higher. At the same time, though, I, I wouldn't count out Google. I think they have a real opportunity to uh, take some market share from Zoom. Uh, what they're really good at is offering a product that's similar, if not better than a competitor, and offering it for free. Uh, their Google Meetup has changed over the pandemic, and I think there's an opportunity to take a little market share from there. So to Mike's point, you know, if, if you can get Google at a good valuation, and especially if you're trying to play, you know, if you're a long Zoom, why not buy Google as a hedge too? Dan, I'll throw the question to you, and you choose out of your own complex, the MAGA that is. Um, which is your favorite going into 21? Yeah. I kind of agree with uh, BK and Amazon. I like the mm. fact that it has spent the last few months since its September 2nd high consolidating here. I probably think that, you know, there's some regulatory issues coming down the pike for them, but I think the stock was up today on, on a positive um, note from an analyst about their advertising business. There's just so many levers to pull here. And then you start thinking about, okay, did they really destroy retail or did they enable retail during this pandemic? Will they start getting a little bit of the Shopify love for 
all of the stuff that they had been enabled to with third-party sellers over the last year or so. So that might become a bigger and bigger theme here. Um, and then when you start adding on that third-party selling to their overall um, market share as far as retail, e-commerce retail, um, then you start having a powerhouse that might face more regulatory scrutiny. So to me, I think it all comes back to that. And I think that that's going to be a huge, huge story in 2021 for all of these big tech behemoths. All right. Next question. It is about a stock that made a $28 billion acquisition just a few weeks ago. Hi, my name's John. I'm curious about Salesforce.com. They've had a strong year given the pandemic, a couple new acquisitions, including Slack. Wondering what the long-term play is there. I've held it for a couple of years now. They've grown substantially. Curious what the thoughts are for the coming year and if they can continue that growth. Brian Kelly, what do you say? Well, I think John hit the nail on the head with can they continue that growth? That's what Wall Street's worried about is was this Slack acquisition trying to buy growth? Is their core business starting to decelerate? And I think that's what the underperformance over the last couple months has been about. And people were concerned about that with Slack. But I'll tell you right now, you never, ever want to bet against Mark Benioff. So if you're looking to get into this, the stock sets up pretty well on a risk-reward basis here. Let's call it 210 on the downside. Looks like it's going to be support. So, you know, you have something to shoot against there. So if you're a trader and saying, I want to get in here, want to limit my risk, maybe you put 210 as your stop-out point and start getting into it here if you want to bet on Mark Benioff, which I would. Mike, uh, quick thoughts on CRM, or, or do you go elsewhere in the software space? No, I'm with BK here. Number one, I think CRM is continuing to perform. The other thing is that I think people were sort of casting a little bit of shade on the Slack acquisition, and I think that probably wasn't really that forward thinking. I think there are some potentially very strong synergies there, and if you're thinking about where they're going to get growth, that's kind of the place that they're going to find it. So. You know, personally, I think it was a smart acquisition. It certainly was a good opportunity for Slack as well. So I, I think you can stick with this one, despite the fact that valuations are, you know, it's not a cheap company. Yeah. Dan? Yeah, who cares about valuations, right, Mel, with interest rates where they are? That's and, what Jay and, Powell you know, said. I mean, listen, That's what the Federal Reserve Chairman yeah. said, Dan. I know. I'm just kind of picking on you a little bit. I haven't seen you in a while, so it feels good. Um, you know, listen, for all you guys who think that BK is only into the Bitcoin and Mike Coe is only into the options, those guys really surrounded the trade in Salesforce. And I agree. I, I don't know how you could bet against Benioff. And I don't know how you'd bet against, uh, you know, Stuart Butterfield, the CEO founder of Slack. The integration within that um, CRM platform, the cross-selling opportunities, the beefing up of the management there. I just think there's a whole host of things that um, Salesforce is, uh, you know, the best is yet to come. And, and I'd take BK's 210 stop and I'd move it down to 200 to give yourself a little room here because there is room near term to the downside. But I think as investors start thinking about the back half of 2021 for this combination, this company, they're going to really like it. All right, let's get to Intel. Locking in its best day ever after an activist investor made a move on the stock. That brings us to our next question. This is Jeffrey Granoff. I'm an advisor with One World Financial Solutions in Miami. And the question that I have has to do with Intel. I've been thinking about strategic options for them, either to be able to buy AMD or NVIDIA, for them to be able to improve their foundry ability to make thinner, faster chips. What do you think of that idea? Interesting. I, I believe that that question came in before Dan Loeb. Dan Loeb also wants Intel to consider some strategic 
options. Uh, Mike, what do you what do you think? What do you think of Intel's prospects? Yeah, so you know, you mentioned two interesting companies there, AMD and Nvidia. So I think if you'd gone back a couple of years and tried to think about things, you know, Nvidia might have presented more of an opportunity back then. I think it's kind of out of reach at this point, actually. If either of those two companies are interested in using their stock as currency right now, NVIDIA would be the buyer. It actually has an enterprise value more than 50% larger than Intel does. And just on a valuation basis, you would think if you're going to try to make an accretive and strategic acquisition, you would try to buy the underperforming asset rather than the outperforming one. So I think, if anything, uh, you would go the other way on that. And also, I do agree that it represents sort of a strategic and activist opportunity because Intel's really languishing here. They do need to find sort of their mojo back, but they're not going to get it by buying a $330 billion enterprise value like NVIDIA. And AMD, I think, would potentially present some antitrust concerns. We just talked about the stock on, on Fast Money, Dan, and, and you mentioned some interesting risk rewards uh, that you see in terms of the downside and the upside for the stock. Yeah, we, we were talking about it last week, Mel, as a kind of a dog of the Dow sort of play, mm -hmm. just how poorly it had acted relative to the broad market, but specifically to um, the semiconductor group in general. And, you know, our thought was that maybe you had risk down to the to low 40s or so. Um, but now with Loeb in there and given his track record and getting things done, shaking up boards, shaking up um, initiatives, I would say that this thing, there's a couple gaps to fill in this chart to the upside. And, you know, to... Um, you know, the question that we have here, strategic options, maybe there's a merger. Um, you know, Qualcomm is fabulous. They're they're obviously very solidly mobile. Um, Intel has missed a lot of that. I thought that would long be a good, um, you know, combination and possibly a catalyst for them to go fabulous Intel themselves. So to me, you know, who knows? Uh, maybe there's better management over there um, at Qualcomm, which has also been activist bait over the years, too. Yep. Coming up on this extended edition of Fast Money, could Starbucks be brewing more than just coffee? We're talking profit potential when we come back and later shares of Alibaba rebounding today after a difficult period for the company. We've got a question on it and we'll answer it. That's when he's back in two. Welcome back to this bonus hour of Fast Money. We are sipping on a coffee stock question next. Hey, Fast Money. My name's Nick. Uh, I was hoping to hear your outlook on Starbucks as we move forward in this post-COVID world. Thanks. Before we get to the traders, let's bring in Kate Rogers for more on how the pandemic is changing the drive-through scene and what Starbucks is doing. Kate. Hey, Melissa. Well, consumer routines like grabbing that cup of coffee on your way to work in the morning while commuting, of course, have been upended by the pandemic. Major coffee chains like Starbucks are taking note and tweaking their store formats in response to that change. At its most recent investor day, Starbucks talked about closing 800 stores across the Americas in 2021, but then opening up 850 new locations in varying formats in the same year, including Starbucks pickup stores, those with curbside options, and of course, those with drive-throughs. At Investor Day, it talked about new store formats, including pickup and drive-throughs, becoming nearly 45% of its U.S. portfolio by 2023. That is up almost 10% from its mix today. Business is also bouncing back faster than expected, and new trends like stores in the suburbs, with those drive-throughs in particular, are seeing a boost. Duncan also announced up to 800 unprofitable store closures in 2020, more than half of those located in Speedway gas stations. But Dunkin', too, has been working on a next-gen store pre-pandemic that caters to on-the-go preferences. 
The closures would free up franchisees to then invest in those next-gen concepts that are more profitable, like stores with drive throughs of course. It has more than 800 of those next-gen stores today. And consumers, they're not just completely abandoning all of these coffee companies. They are going in. Routines are changing. But when they do go in, they're tending to spend a bit more money, order larger uh, orders, and treat themselves to things that they can't make at home, like maybe an iced beverage, a fancy latte, etc. You get the picture. So they're coming in at different times, ordering new things and spending a bit more money. All right. Kate, thank you. Kate Rogers um, and Dan, I, I know you've heard the complaints from BK that he just can't get that that frappe or whatever you call it right at home with the oat milk. Um, what do you think of Starbucks? <laughs> well, it's interesting. I think Kate really laid out the story pretty well. And, and here, what I take away from that is that this company used this crisis to kind of reorient their business in a lot of ways, especially the fact that I think they nailed what the, what, what, uh, that they're kind of overstored, which the Simpsons has been telling us for like 25 years or so. Um, and they're looking at new ways to kind of interact with their customer. I'll just say this about the stock, you know, the 20% year to date gains have all come basically in the last two months since that analyst meeting. Um, the, the chart looks great. I just think that if you're buying it here at an all time high heading into the new year, some of the costs associated with doing what they're going to do, especially when sales might be a bit spotty because back to work is not coming, um, anytime time soon, at least in offices, I think you look for an opportunity to buy this thing back towards the mid-90s. BK? Well, just for the record, it's the skinny oat latte, little caramel uh, sprinkle on top, and a twist at the end. It's really hard to get. Starbucks does it best. And, and I happen to agree with my, my hipster friend Dan, who probably used to spend a lot of time at Starbucks on his laptop you know, doing all kinds of hipster things. You don't do that anymore. But the thing that Starbucks has for them is they're cutting their store size. Generally speaking, you make more money off of that because you don't have to spend as much money on your rent. And let's remember that there's also the China growth and then the environment here in the U.S. Unfortunately, Starbucks has an advantage because a lot of mom and pop uh, coffee shops have been put out of business mm. because of the pandemic and Starbucks was able to get through. So I actually like Starbucks here. If you want to wait for a pullback, knock yourself out. But I think in general, uh, Starbucks goes from lower left to upper right. All right, we got another restaurant question here. How's it going, Fast Money? This is Mick Asaf here from Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I was checking out Chipotle stock and uh, I'm wondering if there's still room to grow. Is it still a good time to enter the stock? Obviously, it's extremely high. There hasn't been a stock split in a while, um, and just as a young investor, is there room to grow uh, without the addition of breakfast or drive-through or anything like that, or am I better off taking my money somewhere else like Bitcoin? Um, so yeah, any advice on whether it's still a good point to enter? I love the company, love eating there, but I'm wondering if it's the best place for my money. Thank you. It's quite a would you rather, <laughs> Chipotle or Bitcoin. Well, to help us break this one down, let's bring in Nick on from Wedbush. Nick, great to have you with us. I, I'm not going to ask you about Bitcoin. That's outside of your purview. <laughs> but in terms of Chipotle, some very good questions from Mick in Atlanta, Georgia. So w what's your initial response? Well, thanks for having me. I mean, I, I prefer Chipotle and Domino's over Starbucks, frankly. Uh, you know, you're in just in, in terms of pure valuation, uh, you're, you're getting 20% plus EPS worth of Domino's paying, uh, you know, two thirds the multiple uh, of Starbucks. And uh, you're getting 50% higher growth um, with uh, uh, with Chipotle uh, and paying about 50% higher uh, with, with Chipotle. And I, 
I think it's it's better positioned. Uh, and so, you know, with Starbucks, you're ultimately going to get 10 to 10 to 12 percent EPS growth uh, over the long run annually, you know, notwithstanding next year, just because Q1 is going to be really slow. So you're basically by getting better growth with the other two, and you're paying lower multiple with with Domino's, but you know, and you're paying about uh, the same relative GARP multiple for you know just for the growth for the growth with with, with Chipotle. They've they've um, reaped a lot of gains uh, because of their investment in digital and their ability to leverage the app and loyalty programs, Nick. And I'm wondering if they are at any disadvantage as we progress through this pandemic uh, from not having drive-throughs. So many other restaurants are are leveraging drive-throughs, expanding drive-through presence, and CMG doesn't seem to have that. Well, they do have Chipotle. <laughs> Right. And so, you know, five years ago, drive-throughs were definitely something fast casual shied away from. It's 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 very much in vogue now. So everyone's going there. Chipotle's definitely going there. Uh, most of their new new units are going to be drive-throughs. They're going to convert uh, a lot of their older units to drive-throughs. And certainly, the digital uh, aspect uh, is also helping. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the the incremental growth from both digital and incremental drive-throughs is definitely going to be there with Chipotle. Hey, it's BK. So our, our caller, our friend Mick from Georgia, also asked about breakfast. What, what's the possibility that Chipotle brings in breakfast this year? I think it's very low. I think it's very low. Uh, you know, historically, they shied away from it because a very small percentage of their units are, you know, in places where breakfast would work. Uh, and so I think, you know, at least in the, for the foreseeable future, I think breakfast is not something we're going to see. All right. Nick, great speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Nick Setion of Wedbush. Mike, what do you think of Chipotle and uh, do you like other restaurant stocks better? Yeah, well, he mentioned one of them. I mean, uh, DPZ Domino's, I think, is, is a strong one. You know, one of the things that a place like Domino's doesn't ever have to really face is menu fatigue, which can be potentially an issue it has been brought up in the past. You know, periodically we've seen Chipotle hit some headwinds. That was one of the ones that people thought about from time to time. And actually he was talking about their positioning as well. Uh, Chipotle, of course, sort of being a lunchtime hotspot for people who are going into work. Now, I think it's important for investors to look through the current condition. And when you buy a stock, you're probably trying to think about the business over the course of the next two to five to ten years not the next two to five months. So with that in mind, I think that Chipotle is probably okay. But the valuation here is indeed pretty rich. It's pricing a lot of that in already. And I think Starbucks actually has more staying power in some respects than he may have actually been giving it credit for. I think its valuation here, uh, while a little bit higher, I like what Dan was talking about, you know, look for some pullbacks. But I think Starbucks is actually a pretty safe place for your money overall. All right, coming up, we've got a ton of your questions left to answer, including one on Tesla's electrifying run. Does the stock continue to charge higher in the new year? We will discuss that. And speaking of cars, Uber has had a jolly holiday drive, but is it time to slam on the brakes? That is coming up when this bonus hour Fast Money returns. Welcome back to a bonus hour Fast Money. We're diving into some Chinese stocks next. Hi, my name is Joe, and I'm calling from Georgia. Uh, I just I wanted to call about Baba stock and how well they're going to be doing in the next couple months, as well as how well their earnings are going to be. Go Alibaba! We're suckers for kids. All right, before we get to our traders, let's bring in Debosa for the latest on Alibaba. Deidre. 
Well, Melissa, some potentially troubling developments today, though. Investors took it in stride, pushing Alibaba shares up more than 6%. First, there was a report that Alibaba affiliate Ant Group is considering a holding company for its lending business, which would be regulated more like a bank. And that's an overhaul that would significantly knock down its valuation. Second, a Wall Street Journal report says that China may be looking to shrink Jack Ma's empire and potentially take larger stakes in his businesses. And don't forget, guys, that Beijing has also launched an antitrust investigation into Alibaba. So all of this not good news. So why did shares gain today? Well, keep in mind that pressure from Beijing has already knocked off nearly 30% from Alibaba's market cap in just two months. Plus, some regulatory fears may be overblown. The Chinese government is making an example of Jack Ma, who has criticized the regime in the past, but most recently he took aim at the financial system right on the eve of Ant's IPO. So that may have been a step too far, even for him, the so-called people's billionaire. However, Jack Ma still created two of China's biggest and most important companies, and it may not ultimately be in China's interest to break up or destroy them. Keep in mind that Alibaba has over 100,000 employees worldwide, and Ma's businesses, from e-commerce to Alipay to video streaming, they're staples of everyday Chinese life. So guys, if you think that Beijing has taught Jack Ma a lesson and saved enough face, as they say over there, it could be a buying opportunity, but if the crackdown on Alibaba and Ant portends more scrutiny and pressure for China's other tech giants, the damage may just be getting started. Melissa, back All right. to you. Thank you, Deidre. Deidre Bosa. So, Mike, what do you make of the stock here? Yeah, so it, it wouldn't be trading at these multiples if it weren't for those potential concerns. I mean, right now we're taking a look at a company that is probably trading 18, 19 times full year 2022 net income estimates, and it's growing the top line at more than 30%. I mean, if you have that kind of a situation, clearly there's a lot of bad news priced in. I, I like Baba here. I think it's a little bit more of a technical story. I'm not exactly sure what the right entry point is. Perhaps Tan Dan has more insight on that, but it looks to me like I'd be a buyer right around the 200 to $210 level, something like that. So I like it. I like it on valuation. I think the fundamentals remain strong. Of course, those uh, risks persist, but that's why it's priced where it is. Dan, do you have more insight on this? What do you think, Mel? First things first, do. I think Debo kind of nailed it. It's kind of a saving face sort of situation here, right? And I don't think that they want to impair, um, you know, Alibaba in any way, shape, or form. This is obviously uh, one of the, the world's most highly valued companies, um, you know, and they want to continue that. Um, that being said, I think face has been saved by um, the administration over there. To Mike's point about the levels, it, it really it came back to where it broke out earlier in the year, I think over the summer or so, back in that 225, 230 range. Right now, it appears to be trying to fill in a little bit of that gap. I think it's probably going to take a little time to back and fill here. Um, but to Mike's point, I think you buy weakness trading 19 times, expected earnings and sales growth of more than 20% next year, pretty cheap. Once you get more clarity on the um, you know, just some of the regulatory issues, this stock is probably heading back up towards those prior highs. All right, let's get to another hot Chinese stock. Hey guys, my name is Ryan. I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I wish everyone a happy new year. My question today in regard to Chinese electric vehicle stocks, particularly NEO. With the recent events surrounding Alibaba and Jack Ma, should NEO investors be concerned holding their investments into the year 2021? My second question is in regard to Tesla. 
Tesla is set to release a made in China Model Y at the beginning of the year. Should NEO be concerned about continued market penetration from Tesla as competition rises? Thank you guys. Have a good new year. Thanks for that question, Ryan. So BK, what do you tell him? Well, so I think you need to be concerned, uh, but I don't think it's a reason to sell the stock, right? So what, what we have going on with Alibaba is a power struggle between a billionaire who said too much and the Chinese Communist Party who doesn't like that. Uh, NEO, being a Chinese company, is going to have support from the government, even if Tesla comes in, even if there's competition, they're going to want their own domestic companies to do well. That doesn't mean you can't get a tape bomb. You can't get something where the Chinese government bans something that NEO's going. That is a risk in every Chinese stock. But if I'm looking out, let's say, the next one or five years, you know, the electric vehicle market in China is going to be where the growth is. And just in general, Asia is likely to be where the growth is. So in general, I want to be in Asian stocks. And I think NEO is probably one of the better ones to be in. Mike, do you think that being a NEO has some sort of advantage because it could be regarded as a, a state-backed company? Um, you know, a, the state would be a champion of this company. Even though Tesla, I mean, Elon Musk constructed the first American fully-owned uh, manufacturing site in China. He's the only one to be able to, get, to do that. Other companies, other car companies specifically, have had to do JVs. Um, but there he was. So it looks like Elon is getting some preferential treatment by the Chinese government as well. Well, you're, you're hitting on, on two important points. And uh, just talking about uh, Elon Musk first. I mean, first of all, he's been able to do a lot of things that nobody else has done. Uh, what he did with Tesla here and what he's done with his uh, space uh, businesses as well. All of this is, is quite remarkable. But I do think that you have certain industries that are kind of the marquee industries for a growing economy and for what will soon be the largest economy in the world. You know, there's certain national pride that one would expect to come along with a national automaker. And I would fully expect the Chinese government is going to be behind NEO's growth and try to support that company because obviously they're going to want to have that come from within. But they are also trying to expand their, econ their economy generally. So that obviously is supportive of Tesla as well. So I don't think these things are mutually exclusive. Uh, and I definitely think that the kinds of pressures that faced Baba and Jack Ma were unique to that. And that doesn't really apply here. So I think there's a lot of upside. And the other thing is just take a look at uh, the evaluation, you know, Tesla obviously is a very fully valued business right here at over $600 billion. Uh, Neo is still, while not cheap again, is, is nascent by comparison. All right, coming up, it has been a hot year for the IPO market. The one software stock is basking in the glory, but is this a good bet for the long run? We'll break it down when this bonus hour fast returns. Welcome back to a special edition of Fast Money. We're tackling all your top questions, and we're driving right into this next one. My name is John Porto. I'm from New Jersey. I'm in the eighth grade at Bayshore Middle School. And so for my birthday last year, I got, I got some money and bought stocks with Robinhood Financial and got one free stock and bought other stocks. So I have I've, uh, shares with Uber, so I don't know whether to sell it or keep it. Dan, what do you tell this eighth grader? 
Yeah, John, it's amazing to, to start investing and thinking about companies and thinking about how to profit off their successes. And, and I suspect this is a company and a service that you use. And I think that's the, a really important part about starting to invest young. So your question is whether to sell it or keep it. Listen, the stock's had a nice run of late. I suspect you are not trading and you shouldn't be trading at this point. I mean, you should trade maybe a portion of your positions. But in a name like this, this company is still very unprofitable. I think investors are thinking about um, their path to profitability on the other side of this pandemic, and the stock should be worth more if that happens. But leave some of that cash free. That next video game that you're going to go buy, maybe put that cash to the side. If the stock comes back in 10 bucks or so, maybe you look to add to that. I know that on Robinhood, you can trade fractional shares. You don't have to buy a whole share. I think that's how you should be thinking about some of these stocks and owning them for the long term, especially high quality brands like Uber. Mike, um, what would you what would you tell him specifically about Uber and, you know, what would be on your buy list for an eighth grader? Yeah, so uh, I, I think there are some other names, probably the ones we were talking about at the top might be the sort of the area that I would look at. I mean, I'm more interested in the Apples, Microsoft's uh, Alphabet slash Google, if you're thinking about it from a long term investment standpoint. Uber, as Dan was pointing out, is not a profitable company. I'm not sure that I wouldn't rather lift, actually, if I was trying to doing would you rather between the two of them. But the other thing is this company is up a great deal. Sometimes even investment becomes a trade when you're handed a lot of profits very, very quickly. And if you bought this at the beginning of this year, that's exactly what has happened to you. And I think you should actually feel pretty good about it. Next year, you're going to be out of this current tax year. I might think about taking some profits and at the very least pairing the position back to what you originally invested. All right. Coming up, we still have more questions to be answered, including... One stock that added to the success story of the 2020 IPO boom. Can the move continue? We'll answer that. Moderna shares well off their highs. Could an investment here be just what the doctor ordered? That's all ahead when the special edition of Fast Money returns. Welcome back to this bonus hour of Fast Money. We're turning now to the Red Hot IPO market with this next question. I'm calling to ask about C3.ai. Is this stock a winner for the future, having a veteran CEO like Tom Seibel? Would this be a good bet moving forward? Before we get to our traders, let's get to Leslie Picker, who's got more on this year's surprising surge in IPOs. Leslie. Hey, Melissa, surprising indeed, because for much of the first half of the year, the IPO window was basically slammed shut. A sell-off in the broader markets accompanied by volatility served as essentially a stop sign for prospective listings. But starting in June, the market came roaring back and total listings of offering operating companies and SPACs raised $170 billion, the most ever on an inflation-adjusted basis. It comes in just shy of 2,000 levels. A unique driver of this issuance, of course, was the unprecedented surge in SPACs or special purpose acquisition companies. These are blank check vehicles that go public and then use the funds to find a future acquisition. In 2020, $81 billion in such funds were raised, the largest being Bill Ackman's Pershing Square Tontine. Operating companies, on the other hand, raised an additional $89 billion, led by names like Snowflake, Airbnb, and DoorDash. IPOs excluding SPACs saw the highest volume in six years. Experts say this surge in issuance is thanks to a number of factors, including lofty valuations, low volatility, muted private markets, and strong aftermarket performance. The average total return for this year's IPOs is 48%, more than double that 
of the Russell 2000. But with such a flurry of deal activity, many are starting to draw comparisons to the dot-com bubbles. Some recent IPOs are indeed trading at sky-high levels on a price-to-sales basis, but that seems to be propping the window open, opening it even further, at least for now. Companies such as Robinhood, Coinbase, Poshmark, Affirm, Roblox, Bumble, Petco, Qualtrics, all on the docket for 2021 IPOs, not to mention the slew of SPACs that I am told are also in the pipeline, Melissa. Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker. Um, Leslie mentioned strong aftermarket performance. Okay, so get this, because the question was on C3 AI. It was initially expected to price between 30 to 34 bucks. It actually priced at $42. On opening day, it went to 100 Dan Nathan, it's now 139. How are you trading this one? It, it traded as high as 170. At that yeah. point, it was trading like 100 times sales. Um, you know, the question was a good one. I mean, Tom Siebel, he's got a tremendous track record over decades of building great um, software companies, selling them, making billions of dollars, making all of his investors a lot of money here. So he's already made his investors a lot of money. I just don't know how you can justify this valuation here at about 65 times um, forward sales. I mean, this is not on the company. The company and the bankers, they price this stock much, much lower. This is investors demand for it. Just because it's trading here doesn't mean it's going to continue to work here, but that doesn't mean that the company is going to be unsuccessful in their mission either. So to me, I think there needs to be a little bit of a cooling off period for some of these sorts of names. We need valuations to come back a little bit. And Leslie also mentioned the uh, reminiscence of 2000. Remember back in 2000, Mel, you threw .com on the end of your, your company's name and the stock was worth a lot more. Well, this stock's ticker is AI, C3.AI, um, kind of a bit of a rage right now. <laughs> BK, what do you say? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm right in there with, with uh, Dan there. I mean, we have a joke in my office. Give me, give me an investment that's uh, a mobile, social, AI, blockchain, and disruptive at scale, and you've got a winner. Uh, I don't know what they all do, but heck, boy, it's going to be a winner. And I feel that's what investors are doing with this one you know i'll even go one further remember back in 2017 there were companies that were changing there were iced tea companies changing their name to blockchain companies and they were going sky high so it doesn't mean that this company in the long run isn't going to win it just feels really frothy to bk right now all right we've still got many more questions coming in this bonus hour fast money just ahead the debate in washington continues we're talking the stimulus package and what may come next and all eyes on Boeing as at 737 MAX hit the skies today. Couldn't an investment in the stock clear your portfolio for takeoff? We will be right back. Welcome back to this bonus hour of Fast Money. We're hitting your most pressing stock questions. Next up, we got a question on the latest stimulus package and what it means for this market. I just have a general question. At this time, the second round of the stimulus package is being rolled out. We have a COVID vaccine being distributed. And it seems like a new style of investment philosophy. Personally, I feel the market is overbought and the valuations are extremely high. Do you feel that in the next several months that a correction is inevitable? I mean 10 or 15% correction, not a market crash. Or do you feel that we'll continue to drive higher? Thank you. And, of course, we learned just tonight uh, from the Treasury Secretary that direct uh, deposit payments of that stimulus check of $600 may be hitting bank accounts as soon as tonight. So 
Mike, I don't know if that's enough of a bridge to help the stock market keep going or if you do also think a correction is in store. Well, the type of correction that he's talking about, a pullback of, of 10 percent or so, is a, is a fairly routine and probably a natural and healthy thing for the market to experience. And I would say that's probably especially true here because, as he pointed out, valuations are, in fact, quite high. But, of course, what would actually be the catalyst that would have the market pull back on us? I mean, usually when we have a, a pullback, it's going to be fueled by, uh, you know, perhaps some kind of a monetary issue or a credit issue. So on the monetary front, that would require central banks actually to take their foot off the accelerator. I don't really see that happening anytime soon. The other thing that would happen, of course, would be a credit issue. We have basically seen a pause on that. So if we started to see some cracks in credit, that actually could cause a pretty material pullback in equities. And I would actually expect it given the valuations that we have right here. The other headline that we learned tonight is that the first case of the COVID-19 variant has been reported in Colorado. I mean, this could be another wild card, BK, uh, for the markets, although it's been able to digest even surges in hospitalizations and deaths. It has because it's looking through the, the valley here and saying, OK, we're going to get over this. We have a vaccine. So, you know, that's what a, a, a particular strain uh, that do, is vaccine resistant would be an issue. Um, that would be ultimately like what we saw last March, a deflationary shock. So you have something where the economy has to shut down for longer than investors expect, or you have something like uh, an oil price crash or something like that. We have a deflationary shock. That's what I would look for if there's going to be a 10 to 15 percent correction. But again, I, I'm in Mike's camp. You know, the money printer continues to go brrr, and they just keep doing it. So at 10 to 15 percent, you probably want to buy it. Dan? Yeah, I mean, listen, you don't really need a catalyst. If you look back to the highs in September 2nd and the lows that we made earlier that month, we had a 10% correction. From the highs in October to the lows in early November, we had about an 8% um, you know, sell-off here. There was nothing specific other than maybe some worries um, about the election, that sort of thing. You know, you could make the argument that this Jan 5th Georgia Senate runoff that's going to determine who controls the Senate going forward for at least the first two years of the Biden administration is an event that is not being priced into the market. I don't know what the outcome is going to be, and I don't even know what the market would do one way or another. But again, sometimes it's just those sorts of events where investors just are uncertain and they look to um, sell. And I just make one other point. If the Democrats were not able to win those two seats and the Republicans have the Senate, then that means that taxes are probably staying where they are. You could see investors in early January head for the doors and some of these massive, massive winners thinking that maybe they were worried about taxes or this or whatever, but looking to take some profits in the new year. Um, you know, that's just one event that I think is coming up in the next couple of weeks. All right. Let's turn out to a company making headlines for something on everyone's mind, the vaccine. Hi, this is Karen calling from Waukesha, Wisconsin. I have a question about Moderna. Why has this vaccine stock been dropping over the last month, just at the time of the rollout of the vaccines? And do you have any help for us, predictions for the future of Moderna? Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Karen. Um, is this sort of a situation of buy the rumor, sell the news, Dan? 
Yeah, I think that's it. You know, and Guy Adami um, on the regular Fast Money program has kind of been all over this. He was playing for that breakout. He called it correctly. I don't think he thought it was going to act the way it did. It clearly overshot, um, you know, to the upside with the excitement about the Pfizer um, vaccine and then its own, um, you know, FDA approval. So you do have that. I think there was a lot of fast money in it. That being said, it's come back to towards that breakout level, I think maybe somewhere between 95 and 100. You know, this company that never really had a drug, I think, approved by the FDA, just had a big one. And I suspect for years they're going to kind of be kind of riding the coattails of this big hit. So to me, um, you know, valuation be damned, I guess, at this point. But this thing on a pullback, probably closer to that breakout level, is probably a good level to reload for those who are looking to be bullish on the name. Are there more gains to be had in the vaccine names, Mike? Are, you know, now that, that most of the vaccines at least have emergency use authorization, is the easy money made? Yeah, so I think Dan's kind of hitting a, we have a couple uh, big names, obviously, that traded higher on vaccine news and then have subsequently pulled back. And then look at where they're trading from a historical perspective. I think another name that I think is sort of right back to where we started and a name that was basically dead money since mid-2016, of course, is the biggest in the space right now, and that's Pfizer. And if you take a look at it, basically, what you, the way I look at it, uh, any you know, potential that they could get out of basically the developments that they've made over the course of the last six to eight months are basically the gravy that you get on top of what was a business that was otherwise moribund and the valuations were kind of low based on that. So, you know, if I'm taking a look at a name like Pfizer, which obviously faces plenty of headwinds with the rest of their pipeline, and that, that was basically what was depressing the stock prior to all this, you had a big bubble based on this that has been given back. And I think basically you might be dealing with fairly reasonable valuations as a result. And a number of traders on Fast Money at Five have made the point, Brian Kelly, as you know, that maybe the best play are, isn't vaccine in terms of the reopening. It's, it's some of the, like a casino stock or a cruise line. I mean, something that's, mm -hmm. that has that sort of leverage. Right, right. I think that's that's exactly right. I mean, this is your classic sell the news. I've used this analogy before. I think it's apt here. Homer Simpson made a fortune in pumpkin futures, except he forgot to sell the pumpkin futures before Halloween and he yeah. lost everything. That's exactly what's happening with these stocks. Sell your pumpkin futures before Halloween. All right. Um, let's wrap it up. Wrap up the evening here with a question on the big news out of Boeing. Hi, I'm Bob from Denver. My question is about Boeing. Given the pre-COVID price of 344, the recertification of the 737 MAX, a vaccine for more travel, and keeping in mind a Democratic White House that will probably have less defense spending, do you think it's a good presumption that Boeing would return to its 344 price? And if so, when do you think that might happen? Mike Coe, I'll go to you. You love planes. You love talking about Boeing. Will it see its previous highs? <laughs> yeah, will it see its previous highs? It's probably going to take a little while because, and it's not actually because of the Biden administration. If you take a look basically at the defense contractors through various administrations, sometimes that spending actually remains more stable than you might otherwise imagine. They had a very big order book before. That has declined. They have a fairly big number of whitetail planes right now. And that, obviously, they have to sell off. So some of the 737 Maxes that they are going to sell, they're not going to sell them for the same price that they originally were. That said, I actually do think that on the, in the long run, uh, this was a place that you wanted to be. So I don't really mind Boeing here. It has actually bounced quite considerably. 340, uh, that's a long way off. But that doesn't mean there isn't some upside from the 240 level. BK, your thoughts on Boeing? 
Yeah, I think 340, 344 is a long way away here. I think a lot of the good news, so to speak, is out of this. I would just take on the defense angle. I, I would think that the real defense stocks now are the cyber stocks. If you look at where the attacks are coming, clearly it's in cyberspace on the Internet. And so I'd look at something like a CrowdStrike, which has just been absolutely on fire this year. If you want to play the defense side of it, I think that's where the spending's going to go. I liked how you pivoted there. Uh, so, Dan, just a quick, would you mm. rather to wrap up this special bonus hour? Airlines or Boeing? Uh, airlines. You know, I'll just tell you, I think it's really interesting that this company wasn't punished for being negligent for the deaths of over 340 people in two crashes. Um, it took a pandemic to put this stock where it was in the hurt locker from those levels. Yeah. I, the heck, this thing was trading close to 400 at one point in 2019. So right. I'd much prefer the airlines and those that don't have that exposure to 737 Max. See you back here tomorrow at 5. The news is next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.